Thank you all very much for coming. I really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Grant Gibson. I edit Crafts Magazine. You're very welcome to the fourth Crafts Book Club. Um, before we kind of get into the, the proper stuff, um, I ought to thank some people because we couldn't do this if they didn't stump up. Uh, I'd love to say thank you much to Carl Hansen and the team. Thank you very much, guys. Um, this is their showroom. It's beautiful. That's These lovely. are their chairs. They're very nice, too. Yeah. Uh, I hope you like them. Um, I'd also like to thank our beer sponsor, the Five Point Brewing Company. Thank you very much for that. They will be their beers upstairs for you guys afterwards, so enjoy. Um, but most importantly, we're here to talk <laughs> to uh, Sir Christopher Frayling this evening. Hello, Sir Christopher. Hi there. Um, I'm sure, well, actually, most of the audience appear to know you and have spoken to you, and you've been sitting here kind of <laughs> holding court. But um, as you all know, uh, Christopher was the former rector of the Royal College of Art, a former chairman of the Arts Council, as well as the Design Council. Both uh, at the same time. Both at the same time. Mm, Heavens, you're cool. busy. And Rector of the Royal College of Art at the same yep. time as well. Yep. Gee whiz, did yep. you sleep? Um, yep. You've written uh, and presented various documentaries, a, a kind of shelf full of books on subjects uh, ranging from Sergio Leone, Henry Cole, Ken Adam, uh, Tutankhamun, and you're, you've got one on Frankenstein coming up, yep. by the sound of it. Yep. Um, and Vampires, which, which is probably my favourite. Uh, but tonight, uh, you're going to be talking about um, uh, the collection of writing that you've done on making and skill, uh, entitled On Craftsmanship, which has just been published in paperback. That's it. Um, so yes, I mean, and so let's talk about, let's crack on and talk yep. about this book of yours. Uh, so I was listening to a podcast that you did with Desert Island Discs a few years back, mm. and you're, you're cringing. Yes, uh, and during the interview, you said you enjoyed going against the grain and sometimes fighting for causes that are difficult. And I was wondering, as I was listening to this, whether craft falls into the difficult bracket. Ah, that's interesting. Certainly writing about craft. I mean, when I started writing about craft in the, the mid-1970s, there really was only, uh, only a couple of books that, that were, you know, uh, had substance. And were, and were, the, the Nature and Art of Workmanship by David mm. Pye, published in 1968, and Muriel Rose, Craft Potters, and those were, oh, and The Wheelwright Shop by George Sturt, but that was going back to the 1920s. And so it was sort of virgin territory, but Crafts Magazine, you mentioned under Martina's editorship at that time, was a very, very lively area of debate. Um, it, was a, it was a very interesting moment that the, the, uh, the new generation of craftspeople were coming through from the United States and England, uh, late 60s, mm -hmm. early 70s. Um, conceptual art was on the rise, and so there was a kind of vacuum in the fine art world of things. And so, you know, uh, there was, uh, people were talking about the value of things. And there was a kind of confluence of, of interest. And so it seemed the moment to write about, write about craft. It was a very lively time. A lot of the great debates <coughs> about art and design happened in the craft world in mm. the 1970s and 80s. Uh, I mean, Peter Fuller uh, founded Modern Painters at that time, uh, which was, uh, you know, rather a traditionalist view of the arts. But it was, it was a lively time. and. Um, uh, in a way, it was the centre of gravity of debate about art craft. And it was Crafts Magazine and debates about how does craft shade into art at one end of the spectrum and design at the other. So that's when I started, and it was a, it was a very exciting time. Mm. I mean, now, um, I think there's a huge paradox about the craft world, because in some ways, it's never been so central to the culture. Uh, you know, there's uh, all this talk of crafting has become a verb. Did you know that? Uh, yes, you know, yes. There's I, a I'm aware of that. Oh, right, okay, you probably <laughs> wrote it, probably invented it. I don't know, but, <laughs> no, no, no. no, but, you know, the lifestyle thing of, um, 
uh, I don't know, uh, craft beer and artisanal coffee and all that sort of stuff. And also, you know, the great throwdown on television mm. and the lifestyle pages featuring the crafts. None of that happened in the 70s. And in one sense, it's moved into the culture, into the, the bloodstream of the culture. But at the same time, 47% of all craft courses in higher education have closed, uh, according to your latest statistics. And so there's this odd paradox that within education, it's, it's declining fast. In the culture, it's rising in certain forms. And that was never the case when I started out. It was, the, it was much more embattled. There are, well, because you, you describe your essays as embattled, yeah, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah, I well, think. in different ways. Embattled, there was embattled with education. Right. It was the rise of design and technology and dropping the C word. So making mm. uh, became less and less important in the design curriculum. So that was one battle. Uh, there was the battle about skill. The word skill rather went out of fashion. Uh, I mean, Damien Hirst said, you know, whenever I hear the word skill, I think of macrame. And, and all the artists were putting down the notion of, of, of physical skill. So that was embattled. And in different ways, each of the essays was taking on one of those issues and saying, well, let's think about it in a different way. But they, they are fascinating because, I mean, these, these essays were written at various different points throughout the 80s and early 90s, I think it's, it's yeah. I'm right in saying. Yeah. Well, one of them, the one about the new <coughs> Bauhaus was 2007, but right. all the others That's were. That's the latest yeah. one, yeah. 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 And, but there, there, are, there are still distinct parallels that you can today it strikes me I mean at various points in the book you talk about the need to counter a craft revivalism of an over sentimental kind yes. uh, and I wondered when I read that where that made you stand on the hipster culture yeah, well, which is now it, imbuing the, crafting, the whole city. crafting yeah well I've got I'm very much I have an ambivalent view of it really it's it's become it's, it's associated with the rural and one of the points I kept making in this book mm. is actually the contemporary crafts are much more urban than rural. They tend to be made in cities by people who've graduated from art school and they're completely different to the William Morris view of craft as a rural thing. The hipster thing tends to think, let's go to the countryside and, and drink uh, you know, artisanal coffee yeah. and uh, you know, craft beer and wear a lumberjack shirt and uh, if you're male, grow a beard and all that sort of stuff. And, and I, I'm very ambivalent about that as a kind of fashion statement known as crafting, isn't it? Mm. It's, uh, craft as lifestyle and it seems to me to be very superficial and not oh you've got to have a copy of that book about farming in the lake district you know, <laughs> you've got to have that in your pocket as well and and all of that and it seems to me not really to be to do with the central issue which is making things uh, and um, unless it's DIY uh, and, and it relates yeah. to DIY you know if I do a bit of plumbing then I'm, I'm being a craftsman so, so I'm fairly ambivalent but you know we all argued in the 70s wouldn't it be great if the crafts moved into the culture instead of being marginal on the edge if they became central to the part of a spectrum of visual activities art at one end design at the other and that's absolutely happened in the general culture you know it's craft is out there but the trouble is that uh, it's not the real thing we, yeah. Well, because, because the other thing that comes up in the book quite a bit, and, and what, what I love about this is I, I, I generally just kind of just go with the flow with these things. And for you, I thought I'd do some proper research and jot some questions down. Yeah. And I'm just actually just going, no, he's answered that one, he's answered that one, right. he's answered that one. <laughs> um, but, yes. uh, one of the things you talk about uh, repeatedly, and it seems to take up a lot of time, and it, it does come up in debates still about craft, is this notion of hierarchy and the hierarchy of the art world. Um, and I'm just wondering where craft, where, where craft sits when you started writing about craft in the hierarchy of the art world and where craft sits currently in, that, in the Gosh. art world. Hmm. Well, there was always, um, in the 70s, the crafts undoubtedly had an inferiority complex. Mm. And uh, 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 many of the spokespeople had that sort of cultural cringe in their voice. 
when talking about the crafts. Uh, you know, there's fine art, and why can't we, you know, that um, we want to be like Cinderella. We want to go to the ball. Uh, we're fed up with being in the kitchen, <laughs> and etc. And I think, to some extent, that's gone. To, to, and, and what's happened instead is it's seen as a sort of spectrum of possibilities without hierarchies, much, much more. You know, that uh, uh, there's, a, there's a wide spectrum of possibilities with the finest of fine art at one end and design at the other. And on that spectrum, it's a sort of intelligent plurality. And it doesn't matter whether the work leans towards one direction or the other. Mm. It's a spectrum. And I think that has changed. There's, there's less of a sort of... And, um, but it still matters where you position yourself. I suppose. But, but <clears throat> in art schools, there's, there's less... I think there's less of a less of a hierarchy than the use. I think, in a way, in education, fine art has, has gone down the scale a little bit uh, in, in some respects within art schools. But maybe there is still that snobbery. I, I certainly try to work very hard at the Royal College to, to, to criticise that, mm. you know. Mm. I mean, uh, in, in your opening essay, The Schoolmaster and the, the Wheelwright, which was written in 84, yep. uh, you concluded that the term craftsmanship was overused and much abused. Yep. And I'm wondering how it was abused in 1984 <laughs> and whether it's still being abused today? Well, it was, um, what I meant by that was uh, uh, the sentimental. It, it brings mm. a lot of baggage with it, the word craft. I mean, it has a basic definition, which, I mean, although definitions don't take you anywhere, which is sort of making things with skill uh, with your hands. You know, the word craft in uh, Old English means strength or skill. And, you know, that's the definition. But, of course, that's irrelevant in a way. What matters is attitudes mm. towards or the way in which the word is used by other people. And the word craftsmanship tended to be associated with the, art, the long shadow of the arts and crafts movement. Uh, hence all those connotations of William Morrisry and rural, etc., etc. And so that was one reason why I thought it was abused. Um, but I think... Uh, I think my new line on this is that we should reclaim the word. You see, everyone then in art school started going round the subject and calling themselves applied artists or decorative artists or designer makers or, you know, all sorts of euphemisms in order not to use the word craft. Well, you spend quite a bit of time, I think the World Craft Council, in a different essay, you spend quite a bit of time yeah. with various definitions yeah. of design Yeah, makers, and, 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 and it's sort of theological. And, and in the end, I wonder whether the really radical position wouldn't be to reclaim the word and say, look, we're fed up with all this baggage that it's had historically. Let's reclaim it and wear it with pride and call ourselves a craft department. Mm. Uh, I think maybe, maybe it's the moment to do that because all these models usually precede uh, a major redefinition of a word. You know, in that, there's that great book by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific mm. Revolutions where he talks about uh, how when, when there are real models about some scientific issue, then that, that's usually a prelude to some major shift going on. Uh, and I, I wonder whether all these muddles, it isn't time to actually cut our way through them and say, let's be direct about this and call ourselves craft mm. and wear it with pride. Uh, in the 70s, the, the, it was more a question of exorcising the demon and trying to get rid of all these connotations and say, look, it's a contemporary thing. It's about today, not yesterday. Uh, it's very vibrant as an area. And, you know, let's, let, let's try and shed all that baggage. My favourite example of that is um, the Bauhaus Manifesto of uh, 1919, written by Walter Gropius. And the Bauhaus Manifesto, you probably know it, it has on the cover a woodcut by Lionel Feininger mm. of a cathedral of the arts. And inside it begins, uh, artists, architects, sculptors, we must return to the craft. That's how it begins. At least that's what all the British translations say. Actually what he wrote was, 
artists, architects, sculptors, we must all turn to the craft. The word return was a mistranslation, very British, that the crafts are a way of looking backwards. What he was saying was that today's crafts are a very, very vibrant area, a kind of research work. Uh, he actually referred to the crafts as research work for design and industry, or the experimental laboratory is another phrase that he used. So let us turn to the crafts, not return. Mm. And when I said that about craftsmanship, I was trying to fight for, let's use the word turn, not return. Because I think um, there's too much of that retrospective regret surrounding this concept, even now. Still? Well, all that crafting, all, you know, the lifestyle thing has got a big measure of that, I think. Trying to relive some mm. alleged golden age, which mm. never happened anyway. There's a, there's a quote in one of the essays that you wrote from uh, Michael Oakeshott, which kind of intrigued me. Which yeah. I'm gonna, it's quite long, so bear with me. Yes, OK. Yeah. Uh, but where he wrote, to work alongside a practice craftsman is an opportunity not only to learn the rules, but to acquire also a direct knowledge of how he sets about his business, and among other things, a knowledge of how and when to apply the rules. And until this is acquired, nothing of great value has been learned at all. Yeah. Um, and I read that, and I think I jotted in the margin of the book, um, is this the kind of philosophy that underpinned your work at the Royal College of yeah. Art when you became rector? Very and much the, so. behind the appointment of people like Ron Arrows. Yeah, very much so. The, the Michael Oakeshott mate, uh, who was a philosopher, the, uh, he taught at the LS at London School of Economics, mm. and he gave a famous lecture in which he talked about the two kinds of knowledge, knowledge and know-how, or formal knowledge and tacit knowledge, whatever you want to call it. And he did it by making an omelette on the stage. And what he did was he read out the recipe for the omelette. And with his other hand, he did all the things you need to know in order to make an omelette. In other words, you hold the, sauce, you hold the frying pan by its handle, mm. you hold it over, you don't put your hand in the gas. All these things that you know by virtue of living in a culture, you know not to do, or you know, it's, it's all know-how. And you cannot possibly, he argued, write down all those things when describing how to make well, an omelette. He said he kind of investigated that in the classroom, didn't he? he yeah, he picked up, thing, yeah. Actually. Oh, you see, that was so interesting. About four years ago, suddenly the sociologists and philosophers mm. started writing about this as if they were discovering America. I mean, some of us have been going, <laughs> some of us have been going on about it for 40 years. But anyway, that's another story. But, the, but anyway, so this lecture is knowledge and know-how. And, and, and tacit knowledge or know-how or... Uh, learning how to live a culture through doing it, I absolutely believed was important. And the key thing at the Royal College was to bring in, uh, you know, Nigel Coates, Ron Arad, all these people, and protect them from the kind of bureaucracy that you get in higher education by putting in a number two, who is a rather thankless task, but nevertheless, somebody who is there to kind of administer the department. So the, the professor is entirely freed up to talk to the students and inspire them. Because it is a complete waste of time to put Ron Arad on a committee. I mean, he'd admit this. A complete <laughs> waste of time. I mean, if, if you actually employ someone like Ron and put them on a committee <laughs> for three days a week, it's absolutely insane, you know. I remember um, he once sent me a note uh, uh, about, about the uh, finances of the department where he misspelt the word budget. Um, B-U-G-D-E-T, and I thought, Christ, if he can't even spell it, how's he going to, you know, do his finances? Anyway, so somebody need... That was supposed to be a joke, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, <laughs> never mind. The, um, uh, so you get a number two, and you release that person to do it. I believe that so strongly, mm. because that was a kind of inspirational form of teaching rather than a rule-based uh, 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 or design methods approach to teaching, which I absolutely don't, don't hold with. So, yes. Um, so Oakeshott's idea, which is somehow... 
teaching involves both kinds of knowledge. Yes, there's the formal knowledge, the recipe knowledge, but there's all this other stuff, and you can only learn that by doing it in the company of someone who knows what mm. they're doing. And I, yes, that's my article of faith for the Royal College, definitely. Because the final essay in the book, I mean, the relationship between craft and education is, is a, one of the threads that runs mm. through all yep. of the pieces in yep. the book. And the final piece is about, is called uh, Towards a New Bauhaus, yep. which was the last piece, that, yep. that, 2007. And you talk about the importance of uh, the convergence between the head, the heart, and the hand. Mm. Um, and I wonder um, if you are running a globally renowned art school in the current economic climate, how you would set about running that. Well, it's very tough. You have to fight. I mean, I, you know, I spent quite a lot of my time going to the higher education funding, the people in the room who remember this, uh, going to the higher education fund, well, two things, going to the Arts and Humanities Research Board, as it was then called, mm -hmm. before it became a council, and talking about, uh, you know, uh, I hate the phrase practice-based research, but action research, <laughs> action research, you know, on the one hand, and on the other hand, going to the higher education funding council and saying, look, you know, you've got the certain things that you, you have to try and protect. I know of no better way of teaching than you know, close relationship between tutor and student in, in a making environment. And it goes for music, it goes for dance, it goes for drama, and it goes for visual art and craft. And, and it, it, it's a real battle. And, and you, have to, you have to get in there with conviction and try and make them feel guilty about, about uh, doing something about it, you know. Because um, uh, when I was on the Arts Council, you know, I had exactly the same issue with music conservatoires, dance academies, uh, drama schools. Exactly the same issue. There's this pressure to... Uh, have lots and lots of students to academicize what's going on, mm. uh, to, form, to make it a bit formulaic, to do distance learning, all these things. Uh, there's pressure. It's not just our, our world, you know, all these other worlds as well. And, yeah, you have to, you have to fight very hard, really. Um, it's, I don't know what else to say. It's the, 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 um, this 47% uh, uh, statistic is, is really interesting because nobody decided as a matter of policy to close craft courses, as far as I can see. It's just that there's a mixture, you know, space, they're very space intensive. Um, technicians, you need technicians. Um, health and safety, uh, with new regulations about health and safety, you needed two technicians to man the machine rather than one. Um, screens rather than hands-on. Face-to-face teaching, all these things, that's the way to teach the crafts, in my view. And those were the reasons why they were closed. Not, no one from on high said, you know, thou shalt closed craft school. So first of all, it was ceramics, which started biting the dust, and furniture. And, uh, and so it goes on. And it, it's very, very worrying, I think, because, you know, the, the craft world needs to be nourished by new generations. Uh, otherwise, it becomes rather established. Is there a narrowing, I wonder? I mean, something like Ravensbourne obviously went digital when they moved buildings. And moving buildings is a bad thing for the craft. Yep. It always strikes me. Yep. As soon as you move buildings, and then it's the easiest thing to junk is all yep. the equipment. Yeah, but uh, it seems not to be just equipment. Can I, say and people, I remember yeah. walking in Jay Mews by the college <coughs> when there was a department called um, stained glass, and it turned into coloured glass, and it turned into performance art, and it turned into something called environmental media by some sort of strange development. And when it uh, and each time it changed, everything was junked. And I was walking in the Mews one day, and I saw this rather tempting portfolio sticking out of the skip or hopper in the Mews. And I, I thought, it's a nice portfolio. What I didn't realise was it was all the original designs for the windows of Coventry Cathedral, which had been <laughs> thrown out because stained glass had turned into something else. It, just, you know, it was propping up the wall behind a filing cabinet. God knows what was thrown out over the years. Because you're quite right, every time there's a move, 
you know, junk, junk the past. Craft, mm. uh, uh, well, that's another story about craft archives. You know, how do you archive the craft? But uh, anyway, yeah, that's the sort of craft study centre story. I'm, I'm intrigued. So we change tack for a moment and bring it back to, to the book. You give quite a large portion of the book to an interview with David Pye. Yep. And I'm wondering why you decided to do that. Yep. Why, why that interview with David? Well, it was, um, it was interesting because he'd written The Nature and Art of Workmanship and The Nature and Aesthetics of Design in the 60s. And he was still very much around in the 80s. And I was intrigued about what he made of the changes that had happened in the craft world. In a way, it, was, it seemed a lot simpler when he was writing in the 60s and it had become a much more plural, uh, varied world. And so I did a series of interviews with him, actually, at the college, of which that's a sort of conflation. And he said some marvellous things. Mm. I mean, that um, I love his line about the uh, American uh, customs and excise or American border control. If you, if you go online and look at the American border control definition of a work of art, uh, in, order, in order for it to be categorised as a work of art, the American border control has to say it is absolutely useless. Right? Uh, if it has any use whatsoever, it doesn't count as a work of art. <laughs> and and Pi said, you know, that's really interesting because, you know, that's become fuzzy. And whereas it was all about function in the... Uh, in the 60s and early 70s, it had ceased to become all about function. It had become about maybe a language of craft which separated itself. What Alison Britton used to call the outer limits of yeah. function, all that. And uh, so it's a great way of putting it, you know, about art has to be utterly useless and so on. I thought that, you know, he, he, he spoke, and how there was a, a lovely phrase, a flock of duckbill platitudes surrounding <laughs> the craft. So I love that. Um, so he was a very wise man on this, and he'd... he'd he was a furniture maker who'd run the furniture department for many years. A very, very unusual beast. A maker who could write very clearly and sensibly and articulately about the crafts. It doesn't happen very often. It really doesn't. Mm -hmm. you know, it takes people like me moving in, uh, who isn't a maker, writing about it. Uh, so I admired David hugely for, for, for doing both things when he was... And also, you know, if you go back to Victorian times, uh, you go to the V&A library, all the books about craft and design came from practitioners working in design schools. Right? So whether it's Christopher Dresser or Morris or Muskin or all these people, they all worked in education at one time. And the crucible of thinking about these areas was education. That changed, you know, after David Pye into all the critics and people outside that world writing about it, and rather vacate that, that uh, you know, and I, I blame both sides in this, that, that that sort of work wasn't coming out of the studios, that people weren't writing from within the practice, people were writing about the practice. And I feel that very strongly, and I think it's a shame we've uh, vacated that territory mm. when, in Victorian times, it... it you know, it was assumed that if, if Dresser taught industrial design, he would write about it. If Crane wrote, taught the craft, he would write about it and publish his lectures. They all did that. Uh, that's how we know about Victorian craft and design. And I think it's very sad that, that apart from David, there are very few examples. I was going to say, these are, I mean, Morris, uh, mm. these, these, these are still one-offs even in their days, surely, weren't they? were they not? Well, they, no, they're, actually, there's, there's, there's all sorts of more minor figures in the, in the National Art Library who taught at the... I mean, I happen to know this because I was researching the history of the Royal College and I, I was looking at all the teachers and what they did. And I was amazed, actually, they all published their lectures uh, in Victorian times and there was a market for them. Well, what happened was that art education at that time 
was a bit like the French railway system, that you, you had a terminus, which was in South Kensington, and all these so-called branch schools. And so all the textbooks were written in South Ken and were sent out into the system. Uh, and, uh, you know, everyone had to... All, all the books in the National Art Library have these wonderful stickers in the front, which is Aberdeen on, in, you know, on Tuesday and Dundee on Wednesday. And they circulated these books as textbooks. So the Vatican of art education was these practitioners writing their lectures, which went out into the system. So maybe that's why, you know, but... Uh, and it's a very hierarchical... I, mean, I wouldn't argue, even though I adore the Royal College, I would not argue that's a good model. But... Um, uh, but I do think it's a shame that practitioners don't write more about what it is they do. Mm. I mean, talking about David Pye, remaining on him for a minute, he gives a hint at the back end of your interview. But I was, I, I was keen to discover what you think he would have made of the kind of technologies that we have today, rapid prototyping, whether mm. that's something he would have adopted. Oh, I think he would. He, he loved, he had his own, he had a thing called a fluting engine. That he used to make these wooden bowls which had sort of, gouges in them, and he made a, 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 what he called a fluting engine. To, no, he said, so long as it's a tool, and so long as you don't let it dominate you, and so long as you don't invent a visual language that you think is technological, a bit like, you know, graphics when computers, first, it all had to look like science fiction yeah. and be shiny, because you kind of thought that's what it should look like, because it's done by a machine. As long as you don't fall for that one and let it dominate what you're doing. He said, I'm all for tools, but he said, I bet I can do it better. <laughs> that, you know, uh, a, a, a rapid prototype bowl won't be as good as mine. But yeah, he said, yeah. the, the, you know, I, he has no hang-ups. He had no hang-ups about that. Because uh, this, this dovetails into something else that you talk about in the book. Dovetails, very good. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, don't just... Uh, um, uh, control. You, one of the definitions you think of, of craft, and yeah. I guess this is where technology comes into this, yeah. is this sense of, of control. control. Well, uh, a predecessor of Rosie, there was a... In 1983, I think it was, there was a huge survey of, I think it was 40,000 working craftspeople called Working in Crafts. It was done by some sociologists at, uh, I think it was Goldsmiths actually, Paul Filmer and someone else, I've forgotten. And, um, and th there were all sorts of things that came out of it. And uh, They were asking people what was attractive about the life of the craftsperson. And two things came out. One was that, that control at the point of production, right? Control over what you do and nobody's telling you what to do number one. And number two, that the life appealed, that the life of the craftsperson appealed. But number three was they had an average disposable income of £4,500 a year, yeah. which was absolutely tiny, and goodness knows how people paid their bills. So people were prepared to sacrifice material uh, well-being for control at the point of production and uh, uh, a, a life, uh, the choice of the life of the craftsman. It was a really interesting survey, 40,000 people. And it wasn't just the sort of superstars, this was jobbing artisanal craftspeople as well. And so, um, I forget what the question was, but it related control. to it. Didn't it's it? about control. Control, yeah. right, control. So control was really, really important, that uh, particularly not being pushed around by a boss, mm. uh, being self-employed. I remember at the Royal College, um, in my first year, I did a survey of... Um, destinations of students. And I think two-thirds, if not more, were self-employed uh, for just this reason. They wanted to create a world around themselves when they left rather than work to someone else's world. Mm. And the Department of Trade and Industry, as it was then called, had all these employment statistics. And they said, hang on a minute, art schools aren't very good at employing people. And I said, I don't get that at all that you know, my people are, are all going into self-employment or, or small group employment. 
And of course, they defined employment as in-house working for someone. Uh, they could, you know, that was their definition. And the result was they missed this whole world, which of course has now become epidemic, of uh, part-time or um, self-employed or, or small group employment, which is the main employer from art schools. And that's all about control. Mm. You know, that uh, I've got a world I want to create and, and I, I, I've been in an environment where you're encouraged to create a world around yourself. I want to be able to continue to do that. And I really don't want someone to tell me what world to create. I think that's, that's, that's great, actually. And we did persuade the DTI in future, and now, of course, the, all the statistics have that. In fact, it's the Office of National Statistics that's recently come up with this uh, crafting and, 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 the, and the, all these statistics about you know, craft as lifestyle choice and everything. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. It's become, crafting has become a category. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to troublemake now, looking at the composition of this particular crowd tonight. Mm. Uh, you write in the book, in one of the essays towards the back end, and I think it's about... You're writing, I think that the hook must have been the Industry of One exhibition, the David Redhead right. show, yes, which yeah. was a fine show. Mm. Uh, but you write, the craft establishment must let in younger people, new blood. Like many who had fought for recognition, the craft establishment, mainly from the 70s generation, seems to be finding it difficult to let go. Mm. Do you think they have let go? Oh, gosh. Um, to be honest, I don't know. At that time, they definitely hadn't. Uh, when, I, when I was writing, there was this wonderful energy that came through uh, that first generation of artist craftspeople, mm. uh, partly inspired by America, partly within the art school culture. And they were young, they were oppositional, they got into the positions of power within the crafts. And the 80, by the 80s, when I was writing that, uh, the next generation had come along and were rather beating on the door and we're finding it quite difficult to get in because, as always happens, yesterday's avant-garde become tomorrow's establishment. And uh, that was, I don't know now whether that's the case or not, mm. but uh, I'm hoping not because, as I say about art schools, if it's not nourished by new blood, then we're dead, you know? Mm. Um, that, that the whole point of these worlds is that each generation challenges the previous one and finds its own voice that way. I remember David Hockney saying about art teaching, a very wise thing, that when he... When he uh, learnt painting at the Royal College, 59 to 62, with that generation of Derek Bosher and uh, um, etc., um, he was taught by Carol Waite, the painter. Now, Carol Waite was quite a traditional painter. I mean, slightly weird paintings, but fairly traditional, who disagreed wholeheartedly with that pop art generation. He didn't like the subject matter. He didn't like the graphic quality of the painting. So he fought them tooth and nail. And David said, that was the best sort of art education you can possibly have. The cardinal sin is to agree with everything and to say, that's really interesting. And the whole system becomes like sponge. And as you press it, it goes in all the time because you never actually have anything to fight and you find your own voice by fighting. And I believe that. It's a slightly Darwinian view of art education. But I feel that about establishments too, that, that people bash on the door and it's their turn. And establishments are rather difficult, are rather bad at letting go once they're in there. And they, they storm the citadel and, uh, you know, it took us so much trouble to get in, we want to stay there forever. So I, I, hope, I hope it's not happening, but it was certainly happening in the 80s, I felt. Okay, very good. Um, we've been speaking for a little over half an hour. I'm very keen to get you guys involved. As promised, I'm going to come amongst you with the microphone. Um, so... 
It's a tricky first question, people. Oh, okay, that's easy. And oh. something else I should have mentioned, which I didn't, it's very unprofessional, I apologise. We are being podcast. So if you could let us know who you are, that would be brilliant. Coming towards you. Thank you. Um, thanks for some very interesting insights and reflections. I'm Annie Warburton. I'm Creative Director at the Crafts Council. Um, I found myself quoting you yesterday. Um, and I'll come to the quote in a moment. But you, you, you started this conversation talking about the rise of craft within the culture. And then you went on to speak about plurality and the spectrum from art yep. to design. Yep. The quote that I, um, that I quoted uh, was um, about multiple cultural and national allegiances. And you said, I don't know if you remember this, that in the future we will talk about cultures yes. rather than culture. Yes. And that uh, artists and makers will come from cultures rather than culture. Yeah. Um, so I'd really be interested in hearing from you some reflections on that, not least today when we're, yes, it, we're, we're triggering oh. Article 50. Yes. And we know that historically and currently, contemporary craft is um, very much fueled by different perspectives and by international perspectives. Mm. So where are we now on that? Golly. Um, <laughs> yes, I think when I use that, uh, I think I was talking about multiculturalism, you know, that, that there was a, a great debate between a, a sort of... Uh, there was talk about what is British culture with a big C and I was saying it's disastrous to think like that that uh, to, to have the idea of a monolithic culture that uh, is in some way exclusive is, is a disastrous thought and that we should think of cultures in the plural and that uh, the way that they rub against each other and uh, I mean and that one of the great strengths of British art education is how radically multicultural it has always been Actually, not always, but it has recently been, sorry. So it was partly that. But your point about Article 50, I mean, yeah, I, it's, what's extraordinary is that, um, you know, coming from an art school world where challenging boundaries is an article of faith and absolutely everybody is pushing the edge of the envelope as hard as they possibly can, I find the erection of boundaries completely incomprehensible. Completely incomprehensible. And also where uh, artists sort of... Um, cross-national boundaries without a second thought. It's just a fact of life that it's an international language. And, uh, and all these uh, cultures working together in art schools and crossing into, and pushing at boundaries. So it's, it's absolutely, I'm, afraid, I'm not making a, well, I am making a political point, I suppose, but it's antithetical to the ideology of what I conceive to be uh, the creation of art, putting up boundaries and saying there's a monolithic culture that we should belong to, Old England, Merry England, whatever you want to call it. I think that's an absolute disaster uh, and, uh, and actually quite dangerous. Um, there, there were, um, it's interesting that um, uh, the, um, on that politics of, of, of this, there's, um, I was once writing about, I can't remember the name of the book, I think it's called The Rise of Popular Anti-Modernism in Germany. Rather unappealing title. I'm sure they're not going to make the film. But uh, um, well basically it pointed out that uh, the, the idea of craft in England was associated with the left. Morris, socialism, uh, control at the point of production, hanging on to artisanal ways of doing things. In Germany it was associated with the right, where uh, the small-scale artisanal uh, South German uh, uh, organisations um, saw it as a branch of nationalism. 
and that the crafts were, the good old German craftsmanship was, and it was played to by the National Socialists in a big way. Uh, and I just thought it was very interesting. The same repertoire of ideas can be taken up politically to mean diametrically opposite things. But, um, so it's actually, the politics of this is quite, is quite tricky. But I'm, I'm a plurality man. Culture's in the plural rather than culture in the singular. And um, a multicultural environment, which a lot of, you know, when I visited art schools abroad, they found um, that the sheer number of different cultures, particularly in London art schools, uh, very difficult to understand. They, 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 they don't do that in quite the same way. And I think a lot of the energy in, in craft departments and design departments comes through all these uh, students of different nationalities all rubbing against each other and bringing uh, and nourishing things from different directions. Same in pop music, you know. Uh, you can see it, there's sort of fusions of all these kinds. So boundaries aren't a good idea, I don't think, in our world, um, I'm afraid. But uh, we shall see how it, how it turns out, yeah. Jeff Crossick, Chair of the Crafts Council. Christopher, I must be the only other person in this room who's read Schulemitt Angel's The Rise of Popular Anti-Modernism well in Germany. Gosh. Um, and, <laughs> and you're absolutely right in the way you categorise it. What's really interesting, though, if you go back to 1848 and the German revolutions, the craftsmen were almost entirely on the sides of, of liberals and yeah. radicals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think your basic point is right, that these same arguments, um, these same cultures of the craft... Um, don't themselves change. It's the politics around them that change and puts them in a different position. Mm. So the fact that, that, that craft discourse in Britain in the late 19th century is on the left, by then in Germany it's on the right, mm. is because of the structures of national politics yeah. rather than the content of the ideas. Yeah. But the, the, issue, the issue I wanted to raise, actually, before you mentioned Schulamit Angle's great book, um, is, is the way we elide craft and skill and use them as if they're a bit interchangeable these mm. days. Mm. Because um, as a historian of 18th and 19th century um, Britain, um, there's a clear distinction between craft and skill. Craft is very much what, what you were mm. describing, and which has become used in different ways now. But craft was about as it has been, had been since the Middle Ages. It was about history. Mm. Um, it was about culture, about quality, about unused knowledge. A, 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 um, a craftsman, they were the word craft was attached to men, though there are plenty of women practicing crafts, they weren't called, um, uh, they, they weren't called craftswomen. Um, the, the point about being a craftsman is that you didn't use most of your knowledge most of the time, mm. but you had it there when you, when you yeah. did need it. Yeah. Um, and that's what gave the control that you're talking about. Even if you were employed um, in a workshop, the craftsman had control. Yeah. Whereas skill was the term that came to be used um, for the industrial worker who didn't have all that range of, 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 of qualities but knew how to do a job skillfully. Mm. And it seemed to me that that distinction through the 18th and 19th centuries was really important. Mm. And now we've lost it. We, mm. we pack skill into craft mm. as if they're the same kind of thing. And I think it's partly because political discourse likes to hear about skill, mm. but I think it predates that. Yes. And I wonder what your reflection is on Gosh. that. Well, can I, just on the first part of what you were saying, my great-grandfather uh, was a craftsperson in Germany in 1848. Uh, and he made, his name was Daniel Imhoff, and on my mother's side, and he made what are known as orchestrions, these big mechanical musical instruments. He made the casings and he made the innards. They were like mu giant musical boxes, mechanical or orchestras. And he was a liberal in 1848, got out, he was actually um, uh, wanted, and uh, 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 set up in 
Bloomsbury, where a lot of German expats set up at that time, and started a record shop eventually uh, called Imhoff's, which was there in, the, in New Oxford Street. It, unfortunately, it went spectacularly bust in 1968. Otherwise, I'd have been a very wealthy young chap. But anyway, that's another story. But uh, I hope I got the genes. I hope that maybe my interest in uh, making uh, comes partly through, through, through Daniel Imhoff. It, and your, your position's on the left, because of 18 Yeah, indeed, entirely, yes, yes. But, um, but craft and skill, no, it's right. I mean, I think skill is, is a kind of, can be a subset of craft, as I say, but it's a bigger word than that. Uh, and, um, and that um, I found on skill, uh, can I swap another bibliography? Harry Braverman, do you remember? Labour and Monopoly Capital, where he talks about de-skilling. Uh, and uh, my wife Helen, actually, in her thesis, tried to introduce that book into debates about the craft, about how um, the pre-industrial worker has his skills or her skills redistributed and, turned and broken down into sort of Henry Fordist bits so that everyone turns into a machine minder and the redistribution... Of, but that's the big debate, you know. Uh, is... is um, no, hang on. The... Um, it's disastrous to, to say that skill only relates to traditional craft activities. And that, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and in the 80s, it was quite difficult to persuade people that the new digital class was just as skillful, but they were using skills in a different way. And skills were being redistributed rather than lost. People like Morris tended to think they were lost rather than redistributed. And he, and he associated skill with a very narrow range of activities, furniture making, textiles, calligraphy, etc., that we all know about, and that the rest weren't quite skillful. That's why it's disastrous to see them as synonymous. That craft continues, but skill gets redistributed. No, I think that's a, that's a very good point. But uh, thank you for allowing me to mention Daniel Imhoff. I, mean, I don't often mention him. Yeah. Actually, if you go to the Mechanical Musical Instrument Museum in Brentford, they've got one of his machines. It's deafening, absolutely deafening. And it's got drums, violins. It, it's excruciating, actually, to listen to. But it was as far as you could go before the gramophone. Then along comes the, the phonograph, and so they start making gramophones. Um, and, uh, and, and so it goes on till, till uh, budget records and, and cheaper gramophones put them out of business. But they, they, they're really interesting machines, these, where you, you had in your parlour uh, what's the equivalent of a phonograph with, with, with these discs that play different music. It's usually the William Tell overture and sort of poet and peasant and things like that. And, uh, but it's deafening, yeah. I am feeling, frankly, so underqualified with my history BA from Southampton. Sorry, sorry. Yep, yep. But I'm going to come over here. No, that's fine, that's fine. I'm yep. just going to walk over yep. here and then feel very small over there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I'm Lucy Rogers. I'm an engineer by training. And to me, the maker community, of which I'm part, is actually the electronics uh, maker yep. community, yep. the Raspberry Pi, um, yep. bits like that. For... That side of the maker community, there are code clubs, there are make spaces. Children and adults can get involved, whether they do it at school or not. If someone is interested, they can now start learning. With craft, from what we've been talking about tonight, the evening classes don't seem to be there anymore. So mm. anyone wanting to come in... I, I can't see where the steps are, yeah, it's quite either for small children no, quite. Or, or for adults coming in. No, and in fact, um, it is possible to go through the entire education system, primary, secondary and tertiary, without ever making anything. 
Um, and that's the first time since the 1880s that has been the case, because one of the great Victorian ideas in education was introducing sort of woodwork, and we can joke it about it now, but woodwork and metalwork, so that people who were doing academic subjects and reading books could have contact with materials, that there was a special kind of knowledge that came out of that that everyone needed. And, um, and that seems to have gone, uh, uh, partly dropping the C out of D and T, partly um, because of all the things I've mentioned about space and technology and hygiene and health and safety and all this. It's a kind of endangered species in, in, in some schools. Little historical footnote, even before 1848, uh, the three R's. Right? I've always thought that uh, the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, that reading and writing is basically literacy, so they're the same R. And uh, there was a man called Bruce Archer, who was a writer about design at the Royal College, some of you may remember him. And he was researching uh, the origin of the three R's. And he found um, uh, various uh, 18th century references to it. And it was reading and writing, uh, reckoning, which is arithmetic, and rorting, or writing, which is making. And the three R's in the 18th century, in fact, there's a famous speech by the Lord Mayor of London called William Curtis in the 1780s, where he talks about the three R's, uh, uh, reading, reckoning, and rorting. And as in wheelwrights and all that sort of thing. And so it was thought in the 18th century that the basis of a well-rounded education was literacy, numeracy, and making things. Um, and one of the reasons I got interested in this subject was that as an undergraduate, I read a book by the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, called Émile, uh, published in 1762, which is a wonderful book and not very fashionable now, uh, where um, Émile is a young student and the whole book is a critique of learning by heart, of reading too much, of uh, rote learning of information from blackboards and social conditioning. So Émile does carpentry. And Rousseau says one of the best ways of challenging that kind of social conditioning in education, all learning the same thing, all writing it down and so on, becoming a robot, is uh, to put someone in a workshop so they don't know they're learning. And actually they're feeding their mind when they think they're just feeding their hands. And that that's a brilliant way of bringing out the individual voice. What Piaget in education called the the psychogenetic educational principle, tailing, tailoring education to the individual rather than everyone does the same thing. And I read Emile when I was an undergraduate uh, in the uh, mid-60s and it made a profound impression on me because it was absolutely not the way I'd learnt and it wasn't the way that I was learning in university either. So I completely agree with you. It's incredibly important and that the three R's should be uh, literacy, numeracy, and making as they originally were before Mr. Gradgrind and the Victorians turned it into reading, writing, arithmetic um, and dro dropped the, the making. Uh, uh, but it is an endangered species, I'm afraid, and, and uh, I don't know quite what we, we do about that. The, and the danger is one looks backward-looking in, in, in defending it, you know, and I don't think it is backward-looking. I think it's, it's a forward-looking philosophy, but the danger is one looks as though one's doing a heritage thing about, you know, let's get back to the old woodwork shop and all the rest of it. I don't know quite how to present that argument in a way that sounds about tomorrow rather than yesterday, but you're completely right. I absolutely agree with you. Got another question over here? Hi, actually it's really kind of relevant to what you were just talking about. Um, my name is Hani, I'm an MA student at Goldsmiths and I also work in a big kind of comprehensive school in South East London. Mm. 
And through my practice, I see making as a way of discovering meaning, which is kind of what mm. relates to that idea of like feeding mind. Um, and I was wondering, talking about the future and solutions, potential solutions, how do you think we can nourish a new generation of craft um, <clears throat> or and uh, value making within the current educational climate, which seems to be Big pushing part. it kind of off the agenda, along with yes. art and design, kind of grouping them as one. And yes. I'm just wondering, what, I, I feel like it could be used across all subjects, and I've seen it. Um, I was in design today, and it's such a shame that it's not also applied to maths through, you know, making tables yes, yes, and or measuring history angles, or whatever. Yeah, no, etc. Sure. No. So, what do you design across the curriculum? How yeah. do you think we can kind of navigate our well? Way it's very got rosy. This is uh, the roses area. I mean, it's lobbying. It's um, it's trying to get uh, design back on the e back because you know, having fallen out of that core area of subjects, you know, when I was chairing the design council, um, uh, design was. Um, the most popular subject in secondary schools. This is in the 1990s. And then we did a survey about why is it so popular, and rather depressingly, everyone wanted to design video games. But anyway, that's another. Uh, but, but it was popular because it was on a level with the other, uh, other post-O-level, post-GCSE subjects. Now it's no longer in the core curriculum, no longer in EVA, it's in free fall. And the numbers are going down every year because schools are dropping it because actually they want to emphasise those core subjects because that's what gets you into Russell Group universities and all the rest of it. So it's, 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 it's banging on the door of the Ministry of Education and saying, um, you know, uh, how about EBAC, you know, making a design within EBAC and, and the creative industries argument, which you've put very, very forcibly. The problem with the creative industries argument is that it is a fiction, in fact, you know, that... Um, uh, if you look at the creative industries, it's a bundle of activities that have very little in common with one another, except that we use the label creative. You know, there's antiques, there's fashion, the fashion business, uh, there's um, industrial design, there's advertising. What do those people have in common with each other? Their industries are structured completely differently, you know. Um, but we've bundled them together, and it was jolly useful to bundle them together and say, you know, here's a sector of the economy that nobody's noticed before, or rather they haven't noticed for a very long time, and, you know, let's hear it for the creative industries, all those task forces and so on and so forth. But actually, the danger with that argument is that it is a fiction, that these are, these are very different activities, and there, there isn't necessarily too much to be gained by bundling them together, plus the fact that about 50% of the creative industries is software in terms of value. Anyway, lobbying, banging on the door, um, writing about it, trying to get a public debate about it, refining arguments, as I've been trying to do in this book, you know, refining arguments so that, the, the, the shedding sentimentality and backward-lookingness and saying, this is actually hard-aged stuff and it's very important to all our futures. All of that needs to happen, I think. Just to clarify, I think I meant it more as like a kind of approach to pedagogy mm. as opposed to kind of bundling them together. Mm. Just that you can learn through that approach. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's, it's rather unfashionable in a way because um, what was the name of... The, there's an Ameri American educationalist who was very fashionable, Michael Gove, rather actually, who, who loved names and dates and learning names of presidents and all the rest of it. And this was, this was you know, that, that every well-stocked mind should, have, should learn by heart all these great moments in, in British history and so on, which is absolutely the opposite of what we're talking about. Um, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think you can sow a sort of making culture into any... Uh, and again, it's great not to ghettoise it into a narrow range of subjects and say, you know, you can learn about the First World War by taking students into a field and telling them how to dig a trench. 
for example, or something like that. And there's a very particular kind of uh, knowledge that arises out of that approach to teaching. It isn't fashionable, but I, I happen to be of the generation that believes very strongly that that's some of my most memorable experiences in education are of that kind. Can I just do a digression? <laughs> well, I, well, you can, you can, you absolutely right. can, of course you can. Yep. However, we don't have that much longer, all so right. I'm quite keen to get another question in. Okay, can I uh, just do one thing? Go on then, okay. go on then. When I was seven, when I, just talk about memorable experiences. When I was seven, I, I went to a little school in a place called Hassocks in Sussex, and we all went uh, crocodile fashion one day to Ditchling. And in the village of Ditchling, there was this little bungalow called Gospels, and we were taught on a... Uh, loom, uh, an afternoon's weaving of table mats by a very severe elderly lady and her minions. And I think it was Ethel Mary, because uh, the dates work, it was the last year of her life, and when I was involved in an exhibition about Ethel Mary, uh, uh, in 1983 at the Craft Study Centre in Bath, uh, I suddenly realised that this fitted. And the thing is, I've still got the mat, I brought it with me, I've still got <laughs> the mat that I uh, produced. I mean, it's not great art, you know, but, um, but, but I can remember that moment where this lady was talking about, it was just on a loom and she was helping me and all these different colours, but the sense of achievement in actually coming away with something that was finished that uh, there was an ending to it, there was an answer. And it may not be the same as everybody else's answer, but it was an answer. It was completely different to all the other subjects I was studying where there wasn't an answer. And, and I didn't have that sort of satisfaction. I've remembered that. I was seven, right? I'm now 70. So it's uh, a long, long time ago. So those moments where that approach to education is used really stick. And a lot of the stuff that was chalked on the board has completely gone. Anyway. There you, are. So you talk in the book as well about... I'm glad I had a chance to produce my <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank all, you for that cue. All yeah. evening, all <laughs> evening, you've been waiting for that. So you talk in the book about uh, the country lane that Ruskin uh, wanted his students to, to dig and build. Yes, and, and yes, Oscar the Ifley Wilde. Road. Oscar yes. Wilde was building, building the... Yep, the yeah, and he was part road. of... Uh, well, they all thought they'd have a... Yes, it's rather sad in a way. They'd have a, a spot of craftsmanship by uh, going to the Ifley Road and being a road gang, and Oscar Wilde, they got bored quite quickly, actually. But, uh, but it's a little bit like these crafting people who think they're really interested in craft because they do an afternoon's gardening. But then they all went around summer holiday, which I thought was lovely. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Yes, they, they came vacation time and said, stop building the road. You know. I think we have time for one more question. <laughs> Hi, Angela Maddock, uh, Swansea College of Art, where I lecture, uh, Royal College of Art, where I'm doing a PhD. Ah. And at the moment, I'm just finishing as parallel practice um, maker in residence at King's College, Faculty of Nursing and Midwifery, with the Nightingales. Um, King's College London. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I suppose what my question is to you, um, I'm not the first of the parallel practices people with the Crafts Council, but mm. the growing sense of the need for the sciences, and particularly the sciences that are concerned with care and health, to look to craft as yeah. a way of developing pedagogy, but also mm. um, as a way of finding uh, new ways, well, creative ways of thinking, really. Mm. And I wondered what your observations yes, might no, be on I, that. I, I absolutely agree. Um, we always assume, because all of us have a terrible inferiority complex about our disciplines, that uh, we have lots of things to learn from the sciences and technologies. And actually, um, if you take engineering, engineering has learned an awful lot from design in the last 10 years. In fact, a lot of engineering courses are rebranding themselves as design engineering or engineering design to make themselves attractive to undergraduates. 
And there's much more of an emphasis on projects, on making things, suck it and see, making prototypes, and less of an emphasis on principles, which actually you can learn from a computer. And so they've actually learned from our world various ways of teaching. It's gone that way, which is wonderful. Um, I think also that, uh, I mean, your nursing thing's really interesting. Do you know there's a book, I can't remember who wrote it, called The Reflective Practitioner. You probably know it. Right. Where he writes about nursing and architecture uh, in terms of what's the relationship, this so-called iterative process of doing things, reflecting on it, doing things, reflecting on it. How does that work? Uh, how, do you, how do you actually learn, like Rousseau in his workshop, you know, how do you teach philosophy through making things? And the whole book's about that, and he actually makes that parallel, which is, which is interesting, where he says, basically, nursing is a craft, uh, but that it doesn't call itself that, and it has a lot to learn from those other areas of reflective practice. And so I, I salute you for that. I think it's, it's a really important thing that you're doing. But, um, yeah, um, I do recommend that book. It's slightly dense, actually. It may be a bit out of date. It was early 70s, I think, but uh, it was a kind of Bible for me because it provided a, a language for describing... Uh, a, a process that I thought was important, but I didn't quite know how to articulate. So this reflective practitioner thing. But I do hate the concept of practice-based research because it, it simply reinforces the old theory-practice divide of, you know, I'm a doer, so I don't do theory. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, let's call it action research or something, but I do think practice-based research or, or um, I don't know, there's all these other phrases are not helpful because they tend to be rather old-fashioned and defensive. Mm. Um, rather sadly, we've kind of run out of time. Gosh. Sorry about that. Um, uh, well, there's beer upstairs, if you'd like that. There are books that you can buy. Chris was going to hang around and sign them for you once you've bought them. There's magazines you can purchase. I would just like to say thank you once again to Carl Hansen for letting us be here. Thank you very much, guys. I'd like to say thank you very much to Five Points Brewing Company for providing the beer you're about to drink. But most of all, I'd like to say thank you to Sir Christopher, even, Frayling. Christopher, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.